Good morning and welcome to the Reliably Well podcast, a podcast for medical professionals looking for insight into ways to be more effective for their patients and communities by making sure they are caring for themselves first and thriving in their lives. Welcome to Reliably Well. My name is Sam Peters and I'm here with Drs. John C. Abraham and our guest, Dr. Jordan Feingold from our Thrive Rx faculty. And today we're going to talk about what burnout is and what it means to thrive, what it means to flourish. And I'm excited to, that Dr. Jordan Feingold is here with us, one of the Thrive Rx faculty members. Before we start discussing what burnout is and what it means to thrive, Dr. Feingold, would you want to introduce yourself and maybe talk about how Thrive Rx developed? Sure. So a little bit of my background, I am currently a resident in psychiatry in New York City. And right now I am on my urgent care rotation and I'll be in the emergency department next month. You may actually hear sirens in the background. I'm currently at my hospital. And I uh, was at the University of Pennsylvania for undergrad when I discovered the field of positive psychology. I kind of stumbled upon it. And what I learned is that positive psychology is the science of well-being and human flourishing. And it wasn't until actually discovering positive psychology that I realized how focused we are on in medicine on dysfunction and disease and getting rid of what's wrong with people, sometimes at the expense of really promoting what's right with people. So early on in my career, even before coming to medical school, I decided that I needed to study positive psychology because if I want to be a doctor who can really take a 360 degree view of a patient to understand what's afflicting them, I also really want to be able to understand what's right with them and what their strengths are so we can help move the needle on their well-being and not just the absence of disease. So I did that. I got my master's degree in applied positive psychology. And then I started med school. And in my journey through the positive psychology community, I met Sanj Katyal, who is a physician who is also trained in positive psychology. And he and I discovered our mutual love of teaching and the importance of teaching physicians these really fundamental concepts of positive psychology, just because it is so antithetical to how we are cultured in the field of medicine. And in around 2018, the original version, the the beta, the the original course was born that Sanj and I taught. We still taught it online. It was virtual, but it was actually all the lectures were done live with physicians from across the country. It was a small group of us. And we sort of piloted the sessions, got really great feedback, and it turned out to be really meaningful for these docs. And then the pandemic hit and we realized we needed to pretty quickly scale this because more and more doctors were going to need some training and well-being. And we realized that it's not just positive psychology that really is important for physicians for their well-being, but things like financial literacy and understanding financial wellness and understanding how to incorporate positive psychology principles in leadership because we're not just doctors, we're engaging with leaders and we are leaders. So we assembled our team of Paul Frampus and um, Keaton Kulkarni to round out the course. And we recorded all of our videos and we're constantly updating and iterating things. But now it is a totally asynchronous course for doctors to watch on their own time with videos and they can go back as many times as possible and rewatch the lectures. And then we have this office hour where we can engage live with the students and really delve into the concepts further. Yeah, fantastic. 
So like COVID-19 made you guys kind of pivot and start thinking about how can we scale this? Let me ask, how does Thrive RX compare to other wellness programs? Because a lot of people are talking about burnout. A lot of people are talking about wellness. How does Thrive RX compare um, to other wellness programs? Yeah, so I think in the past couple of years, even since 2016, when I graduated from the positive psychology program, the wellness industry has absolutely exploded and everybody's talking about it. You know, but the wellness, like lowercase w wellness that gets thrown around, it's a lot of, you know, take self care, go to a spa, take a vacation, like disconnect from your life. And what we talk about in Thrive RX is what I call uppercase W well being. It's really evidence based, scientifically grounded content that is based in what we know really contributes to well being. That has been studied in rigorous ways. So everything we talk about has an evidence base, at least from the positive psychology perspective. And we have absolutely scoured the literature to create this course about how well-being, capital W well-being, and health intersect so that we can understand how in medicine we can really apply these concepts for not just ourselves, but also for our patients. And then, of course, I think it's really unique in that we incorporate the leadership component and the financial literacy component, which I don't think I've ever seen in a in a well-being program. And finally, I think this is so important for doctors because we need programs by people who who get us and the unique challenges that we experience as clinicians and as physicians. And I honestly, you know, in all of this work, I think a lot of local institutions have their own wellness offerings or well-being programs, but I think we've consolidated a course that transcends institution. It can be something that a doctor in Canada or the South of the United States or the Northeast in a busy clinical environment. These are principles that any of us can understand. And it's really like first and foremost designed for clinicians by clinicians. We don't have to, you know, guess what you're going through. We know what you're going through because we're going through it too. I know in our previous discussions, you and uh, Dr. Katyal have talked about how you are not wanting to be clinicians who leave the hospitals or leave medicine and start some program. You want to be involved in medicine. You are building this program of positive psychology for your team members, not to get away from medicine, but to stay in it. And this is kind of like a side thing where you guys can help other clinicians thrive. Exactly. So unlike, you know, the wellness industry where it's like, let's just go get facials and massages and opt out of life for a few a few days. This is really about how do we bring the science of well-being into our daily lives from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night and really orient ourselves to a mindset of positivity while not ignoring that there are very real problems that we face, that we are have chosen a field of work that is incredibly challenging. And in that challenge, there's so much meaning to extract. And what we're trying to do is help people reconnect with that sense of meaning that brought them to this work in the first place, that can pervade the way we see the work, the way we see ourselves, and the way we live our lives. So well-being is not something like you have or you don't. It exists on a spectrum. And I know we'll talk about this today. 
And it's not just, it's behavioral. There are things we can learn and practices we can embrace to achieve and to extract greater well-being in our daily lives. Yeah, I think as opposed to a, a checklist of things you can do or easy buttons you can press to then feel better for a period of time, what I've gotten from your program is is the insight, the depth, the learning, the education, the the background to to really understand the feelings and emotions that are that are present, and then you deal with them in an intellectual way, um, and, and then things become less um, they become less burdensome because we understand what it is that's going on on the other side. You know, uh, COVID COVID nineteen is is terrible if you if you just read the worst story, but if you kind of see the whole panoply of the information, maybe you have a little bit less fear of uh, what's going on of the vaccine or whatever else. If you if you've educated yourself truly on it, you can feel a lot more confident. And the same thing with burnout. Uh, uh, and, and, and moral injury or whatever other term we call it, if we if it's just something that happens, it's just a scary term that's out there, it is intimidating. And the more we learn about it, the more we understand our own physiology, the better off we are to to you know attack the problem to to find a solution that actually uh, can benefit us and, and our, our our colleagues. Yeah, and I always laugh when I was in training, we had to do this module every February and the title to promote wellness. Okay. And the, and the title of the module was, um, uh, how to get more sleep when you don't have any time. (laughs) And I always like, just like laughed at that. I was like, this is so funny. Like my, my wellness is being distilled to a lack of free time and sleep deprivation. So if I can just have better time management and sleep more than I, aha, I'm well. But then you're making me do this, this like typing module about like, that has no evidence or data or literature. And it's like, you've, like, and, and, you've and got you've to taken my me. free time away <laughs> that I could be sleeping. Exactly. 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 Um, so that was the academic medical center's antidote to um, burnout. So let's talk about burnout. Dr. Johnson, you just talked about moral injury, moral injury. So some people think, as I understand it, there's a, there's a school of thought that says it's not really burnout. What happens is as a clinician gets into medicine, they, they want to help the patient, but they realize they cannot. Either the institution's not really providing this, you know, the resources that they can, or the patient's not taking their medicine, not losing weight, not stop smoking. Or some people think, so that's moral injury, as I understand it. And then there's the school of thought that says burnout is the result of bad decisions, it is the responsibility of the clinician. So let's say, you know, you said financial literacy is something that's distinctive about Thrive RX. Well, if you get into debt, you can't enjoy your job because you're stressed out because of your finances, your then your marriage starts, you know, being um, affected and, and all this stuff. It's like, no, there's it's all personal responsibility. So this is there's this continuum between personal responsibility and the, I guess, the external factors or the state of the affairs of the world that doesn't allow you to, to get out of it. So, Dr. Feingold, what, basically, what is burnout? Sure. So, let's break it down first into the definition of burnout. I'm happy to talk, too, about moral injury and, you know, this idea of personal responsibility versus the systemic uh, responsibility. So 
first of all, I think it's critical to know that burnout is a workplace phenomenon. It's not a mental illness. It's not a personal failing. It is a result of one's relationship to their work and it is driven by systemic factors. So it is not about a personal lack of resilience or a failing. It's not a mental illness. It's really a workplace phenomenon driven by systemic factors. It has three core components that were described in the early 80s by Christina Mosloch, and those are emotional exhaustion. So just feeling just depleted at the end of the day. Uh, low sense of personal accomplishment, which is, you know, we're all, especially in medicine, we are a highly accomplished bunch and we are doing things on a daily basis to really help people and further patient care. And in when we're burned out, we lose sight of that. And then the third is depersonalization. So starting to see people as objects. So for example, instead of, you know, Mrs. Jones, who is a 75-year-old woman with diabetes, it's the diabetic in room three. And we start to see people for their problems and not as the full human beings that they are. And that constellation of symptoms is what is known as burnout. And burnout is not specific to physicians either. Many, many, any profession can develop burnout. And while it is certainly a systemic problem that drives it, I do believe it is not an either or, that it is all the system's fault or it is all the individual's fault. I think we have to break down that sort of dualistic thinking and say, it's everybody's problem. We need systemic solutions and we need individuals to recognize emerging signs of burnout in themselves and in their colleagues so that we can actually do something about it. We are agentic beings in this problem and in this system. I think when taken to the extreme, I sort of see it on a, on a continuum that, you know, burnout, signs of burnout can happen at any point. And then I think when taken to the extreme, that's really when the moral injury sets in. Both burnout and moral injury is really a concept that's been studied in veterans, especially like combat veterans. But more and more people are talking about this in medicine because really we're, be, especially during COVID, we're basically being sent into a war zone. Imagine the emergency department in the height of COVID. And we're being asked to save people and do our job jobs and everyone's dying all around us. And we feel like we can't do anything, that low sense of personal accomplishment. And, you know, all the things we learned in medical school and our training, all of the therapies have failed us. And I think that is incredibly morally injurious to our human psyche. And we know burnout is associated with depression. It's associated with substance use. It's associated with unprofessional, a slew of unprofessional behaviors. And it's also associated with suicide. So while it's not in and of itself a mental disorder, it's associated with the onset of all of these mental disorders. And it also begets a vicious cycle because if someone's burned out, they can't be their best at work. That inevitably trickles to their colleagues. It causes, it can fuel a toxic work environment, even if it's the workplace's fault. It's not the individual's fault that they're burned out, but the burned out physician is not operating optimally. And then that physician might leave. That means more work on their colleagues. And that means that everyone is becoming more and more burned out. So it's a huge, complex, and multi layered problem. And therefore, it really needs multi layered, complex solutions. I have a question to follow up on that. I completely agree with you. So there's a guy named John Malisich who uh, is a friend, and he's coming out with a book. He's written extensively on burnout for the last five or six years. 
I'm going to read you this article that he published at the end of the pandemic. I'm just going to read a short snippet of it from the New Republic. Sure. Um, and I don't really know how I feel about this. He says there's a deeper... So, so, the, so the purpose of the article is how burnout is... If you were to Google burnout, you would have a bajillion hits. Like everybody's talking about it and you'll read about cooking burnout and Zoom burnout and... And but that your your point about it being an occupational like the scientific definition of burnout has to do with work, um, and I think that that's really important. So he talks about that a little bit, but he says there's also a deeper, more insidious side to our eagerness to claim burnout. Saying you're burned out is a subtle form of self praise. If you're burned out, then you must have a roaring blaze of productivity to begin with, an ideal worker, and a culture that values work practically above all else. In the religion of work, the burnout is a martyr. Mm. It's kind of a hot take, um, but I think it does in some ways apply this, um, like, are you really, like, did you really go to residency if you don't feel burned out? You know, there's almost this, like, um, it's like this badge, you know, it's almost like a merit badge that you get as you go through training or you're taught that it is. And I think that is what you were saying in your definition that that's actually the wrong way to think about it. Um, but it is how many think about it. I think it's like, I've finally become a doctor because I'm miserable. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, you get the drift of all of these sorts of definitions that happen out there. People are addicted to whatever, or people are, um, hyperactive or people are, uh, you know, chronically fatigued and what that was initially or what we defined it on, uh, became a whole spectrum of, of individuals. And so I do think that there is that, there may be that tendency either from a standpoint of a merit badge or from a uh, get out of jail free almost way. Oh, I can't do anymore. I'm burned out already. Uh, sort sort of issue. I you know I, I remember being fatigued in my training. I don't remember being emotionally exhausted uh, in my in my residency. But I do remember you know uh, on the on the surgery rounds uh, getting there at four in the morning on trauma surgery and being there until midnight and you know dozing off here or there. But um, one time in the operating room and an opportune time, but we, you know, uh, it's memorable uh, to you. But but you know, it was exciting what was going on, the learning that was happening, the way that you were moving from that person who was sweating bullets to prescribe Tylenol to somebody to somebody who felt just fine when their hands are inside a living human body. Um, that that is exciting. The 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 growth that you can see in yourself. I think when we start doing a lot of things out of um, a requirement, well, and, and, and I can look at some of the examples that I've seen and sometimes when I've not felt my healthiest, but when you're doing things because I have to, I have to go to work today because I've got a mortgage or you know because I've got $400,000 worth of student loans, man, that's a way different job than doing exactly the same task because I'm really excited about the team that I work with. I'm really excited to be able to help someone feel better today than they did yesterday. The, you know, perspective changes those things uh, so much. So I think uh, there, there are times, and in, in what was astonishing to me in looking at some of this stuff is how early people are, to your point, claiming the burnout logo, um, you know, in training and even in college, 
when I was like, man, that was the time of my life, you know? I mean, that was, it was like, I, and I, I was in chemical engineering. I studied a whole lot, but I still enjoyed myself a lot in college because uh, especially looking back, you're like, there weren't a lot of things you really had to do. You didn't have to show up to class. I mean, I went to class because I, I felt like I needed to and wanted to learn something different, but you didn't have to. You know, all of that freedom that you had then, and now people are claiming that they're burned out at that stage in life. It does make you wonder about kind of definition creep uh, of, of what we've called burnout in the, the, the issue that's there and how much of the, of the bandwidth of that definition is the true issue that, that is an issue that we've seen more and more of our colleagues committing suicide in medicine uh, because there is, uh, you know, th- this, this syndrome that they get into does push them into destructive behaviors or does push them away from things that would help them uh, to, to be healthy. Uh, you know, th- there is that, that, band of it but i do think there's a a wider variety that's uh noise yeah i'm really glad you brought that up because i i think that that is a very it's a provocative statement that i do think refers to some of the the creep of what we really mean by burnout and what the imprecision of the words that a lot of us use in day-to-day life but it really also speaks to the culture of the American workforce, and then especially in medicine and healthcare. I think the things that we praise in healthcare, it's thank you so much for covering that extra shift. You are the best colleague. Or I saw that you stayed a few extra hours to help that last patient beyond, you know, you could have gone home, but you stayed. The things in our culture in medicine that we reward are so antithetical to self-care. And I think part of why burnout in medicine has been in the literature for over 30 years and has been a problem in our field specifically with grave consequences, much graver than I imagine other fields, um, because we, we are, our job is fundamentally to take care of other people. And if we are burned out beyond that which we signed up for, because we you know, I don't think anyone, we would be del- like totally deluding ourselves if we thought we were going to go into medicine and not going to be exhausted, have an extremely challenging job and feel a little bit you know, feel exhausted sometimes. I think, you know, everyone in medicine feels that way. And that is normal. It's what we signed up for. And that should really be the expectation of anyone who's even contemplating going into the field of medicine. But when we are feeling so emotionally exhausted that we are depressed, we it's creeping into depression, or we are starting to see patients as objects, we cannot do our job. So burnout for us as doctors has grave consequences, I think, relative to burnout in other fields. And I think that makes it incredibly problematic. And we have to be precise in our definitions. And we should be measuring burnout with precise measurement tools and, um, you know, having metric like validated metrics to say, not just, oh, I'm feeling burned out today, but no, I've actually been experiencing burnout chronically over the last year or over the last month. Um, because until we can make those claims, we can't, uh, you know, we can address morale and we can address people's hours, things like that. But what we really need to do is if, if a fundamental or if a portion of our workforce is truly like clinically burned out based on the validated metric tools, 
that's not just, oh, but my work, my employees are doing their job and working really hard. There's something that we actually need to address that's under the surface that is problematic. So we need to measure burnout and then we can, you know, once we define, you know, how long we've been feeling burned out, then we can start, I guess, addressing the issue. And one of the things, I guess, within positive psychology is noticing that the goal of life is not just to not feel burnt out, burned out. It's, it's, it's to feel, it's to flourish, it's to, um, to thrive. So let's talk about that for a second. The goal of life, living the good life is about flourishing or thriving. Um, what is that? What does it mean to, uh, to thrive? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question and one that I sort of spent my master's year trying to figure out what that meant because, you know, burnout had been so well defined for so many years and there weren't really many unifying definitions of well-being out there that I could say like, okay, here's how we, here's how we build flourishing. Here's how we build well-being. So the, the, definition that I love to use is based on Martin Seligman's PERMA model. I call this model REVAMP. And it's an acronym and a call to action to reconceptualize the way we think about our well-being. So REVAMP stands for relationships, so positive relationships, engagement in our life, so being in the flow of our day-to-day -day routines, using our character strengths, being deeply immersed in our tasks on a daily basis vitality, taking care of our physical body and really understanding the interplay between our minds and our physiologic states, accomplishment, working towards achieving our goals, sort of the converse of the low sense of personal accomplishment, but of burnout, really actively working towards our goals and, and making progress towards something, a sense of meaning and purpose in our life. So being part of something larger than the self. And then finally, positive emotions, the daily sort of affective experience of feeling good, whether that's joy, excitement, inspiration, hope, serenity, calm, love, all of the positive emotions, both the high valence, like I can, you know, jump for joy and also the calmer serenity, low valence, positive emotions. And so those six ingredients are really what the literature and the science say are the most important factors that contribute to well-being. None on their own are sufficient and all are necessary for well-being. And I like to think about all of these sort of as buckets that we can nurture and fill deliberately through activities aimed at improving each of these things. So it's not just like I woke up today and I'm like, you know, I... I, I just have no meaning in my life. It's like, how can I actually go actively cultivate my sense of meaning today? Like, what can I do to activate that in myself? So all of these things are fluid. They are, we can actively work toward them. And together, they really comprise a state of flourishing. Yeah, I really like the revamp. I'm a, I mean, I like acronyms just because my mind is certainly finite. Um and so to, to add a little bit of a dimension to that, I have a note on my phone that I keep of um, quotes. And I always try to read this one if I'm about to have a conversation that I'm not super jazzed about having, that I feel like I need to have a kind of like a mindset to go into that's about 
flourishings from Andy Crouch's book, uh, Strong and Weak. Um, and he says this, there are two common temptations that lure us away from abundant living, withdrawing into safety or grasping for power. True flourishing travels down an unexpected path, being both strong and weak. We see this unlikely mixture in the best leaders, people who use their power for the benefit of others, while also showing extraordinary willingness to face and embrace suffering. Rather than being opposite, strength and weakness are actually meant to be combined in every human life and in every community. Only when they come together do we find the flourishing for which we're made. Um, and I appreciate that because it doesn't, it makes room for hard things and you still flourish, right? Like this kind of, um, one of the things I'd, that will stick with me from the Thrive RX thing is that, is that, is that burnout is, is not the absence of hard things or uh, I'm going to totally butcher what y'all said, but you know, but it's like, that's like, it's not like this, I got to get all the bad stuff out and crowd it out and, you know, throw it away and do the Marie Kondo of my life inventory. You know, um, this is, uh, I just need, like I can be weak and strong all at the same time. I love that. And to distill that, it's really about dichotomy transcendence. It's really about understanding that things are not just black and white or all or nothing that there's there's every we live in a life of gray areas and that we have to embrace the the dualistic thinking the dialectic the yes and i can feel incredibly anxious and incredibly excited about something i can feel joy and i can feel i can feel sadness at the same time i think when they did some studies about people in the aftermath of 9-11, what they found was that the people who did the best were those people who, in the midst of the tragedy, they were deeply affected, but they still were able to find hope and they were still able to find gratitude. So really, it's like this ability to hold conflicting sentiments side by side and really like not suppress the dark parts of ourselves and suppress our weaknesses and those scars, but to really embrace the totality of our being and, and just recognize we are imperfect creatures who can feel multiple things at the same time. I think if we could really accept and master that, we would suffer a heck of a lot less in this life. Yeah. And it's just that, yeah, I mean, like, I just think that in medicine especially is such a gray area. Like I could, I could treat a patient with COVID like six or seven different ways. And it's sometimes I'm right. And sometimes I overshot or didn't, you know, or didn't do enough. But, but sometimes we tend to be very absolute that it is right or wrong. Um, despite the fact that there are so many nuances uh, in between uh, clearly right and clearly wrong uh, uh, treatment in, in, in medicine, you know, there, there are a few absolutes, but there are many more, um, relatives, uh, out there. And I, I, I do think that it's hugely important that we have, uh, a different view on the world. I think it's hugely important that we have an education about what is going on as opposed to taking the, the snippet, the easy, way to, okay, I guess I am uh, burned out and it's the fault of either myself or it's the fault of the job that I'm in, um, that we take some, some ownership, not necessarily of the, of the problem itself, but we, we take some ownership of, of, 
of our lives and of what we can do. Uh, there will never be the perfect uh, world that we can live in where, you know, as you say, you know, uh, bad things uh, never occur. But there, there can be a trajectory where we are improving, where we are uh, learning, getting better, we are helping others, we are um, making something better than what it was when we got here before. And I think that's the, the, the big thing that we have to, we have to look at. Uh, we, we are in a better place, even though it may be bad today. Uh, we're in a better place than we were a year ago. Um, even with even with the pandemic raging as 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 bad as it is now, uh, those folks in New York City a year ago thought um, would would trade places with us right now. Uh, uh, you know, no 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 questions asked uh, because of what we've learned and experienced and how much better uh, that we've gotten even in that very difficult aspect of our lives. And and so I think you know the, just having some some uh, longevity in our view really changes a lot of these these things that are such a crisis to us in the moment when we look at them over um, a, a time frame uh, and, and what is different about us and what's different about our world. Right. And that and like that perspective, you know, like you think about like, like if I close my eyes and imagine what do I imagine flourishing? It's like I think of like a flower blooming or like I think about like Michael Jordan game six of the 97 final, you know, like this like there's seasons where the flowers dormant, right? But it, but but it but it still is going to bloom and it's going to flourish in the right conditions and the and like to me that's so encouraging because I have bad days and it doesn't mean that I'm not flourishing, you know, or I or I make mistakes or I or I say the wrong thing or I you know say I'm going to do something and don't wind up doing it, but it doesn't like like I'm like I'm still capable of flourishing. It's a process. It's a practice. It's a um, and so it's kind of just this disposition of this, this, this love for learning, this love for perspective that kind of brought you to medicine in the first place. And I think that re-embracing that almost on a daily basis, kind of like you were saying, Jordan, of kind of getting into the rhythms of this like daily flow, like I think that's how you can really grow and flourish. Yeah, I love how you said it's, you know, it's not a destination that you arrive at. Flourishing is a process and and growth is a process that we commit to and recommit to every day. And life is also isn't linear. It's not like, okay, like I beat relationships level. Now I'm going to level up to engagement. And now I'm going to level up to vitality. Like that's not, that's not how it works. My friend and colleague, Scott Barry Kaufman wrote an amazing book called Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization. And he always says this, life is not a video game. We don't just, you know, continue getting up, up, up. It's often a two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. And something that Dr. Johnson said reminded me, like we're always, go they're always going to be bad things. And I don't think we'd, any of us would really want to, if we thought about it for long enough, live in a world in the absence of those things, because it's the contrast of the, the good and the bad, uh, the challenging and the euphoric that makes life so rich and so meaningful and so exciting. If we just felt happy, I don't think any of us would want to feel happy 100% of our days, like really just like joy, smiley face. I think it's the richness of life and the complexity that makes it makes things so interesting. I think it's critical, though, in this education, in this well-being education, especially for doctors to remember, the negative is always going to feel stronger because that's how we evolved. That is how humans are wired. That's how our brains 
are meant to detect threat more and in you know a bigger dose than um, we are to sort of detect joy or or the good stuff because that's how we survived in a very inhospitable, very dangerous, brutal way when humans evolved. Um, so the negative stuff we've we've evolved to overvalue it relative to the positive stuff. So that's where you know. Uh, we're working in a in a system in a job where there's a lot of negative things. That's always going to feel stronger if we let it. If we just go by the default, then it will to notice and deliberately cultivate the joy, the positive relationships we have with our colleagues. That's why it's so important that we learn that and learn how to do this because to flourish is an active process. It's not just going to happen to us and we sit back and let it happen. It's really something we have to engage in deliberately, really every day. Just on that comment of there being there needing to be a contrast, uh, I joke with my wife sometimes because she used to write out stories, and she would share her stories with her siblings, and they all told her they were garbage because um, I, I don't know if they're that, that blunt, but they were always happy. There was nothing bad that happened, and that's very interesting because that means sadness. Or the downfall is a great-making property, if you want to call it that. It's a great-making property that we need those to contrast the good days. And um, anyways, I think there's a, there's a long tradition of thought within Christianity that would support that, that idea of there, there needing to be a fall in order for there to be some drama or some movement in the plot line, in the plot line of our lives, that's comic, um, you know, comedic um, in the, the literary sense of the term. So I think that's very interesting that that contrast is part of a flourishing life. Yeah, and I can't help but think of the movie, in, like the, think of the movie Inside Out, the Pixar movie, right? Like sadness is the best character in the whole movie, right? Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's so cool that, um, that even that way of depicting it, like I, like I want to imprint that into my kids' brains of like, guys, like it's, a, like it's okay to feel, like it, to feel what you feel. That's like part of having an integrated mind, you know, is to, is, to, is to be able to hold your emotion and what you feel and not necessarily react to it, um, but just like be with it um, is, is, is critical. So let's get practical just for a second before we end. Um, so far, we've been talking about dealing with our own finitude and dealing with kind of our aspirations, though, you know, wanting to aspire to be everything that being a clinician is. But we live in some kind of a gap, and we've talked about this on a previous episode. We have to learn to live within that gap between who we are and who we want to become. And those are a polarity, and we do need to live within this tension. Dr. Feingold, what is some low-hanging fruit with helping us flourish, helping us live within the gap of reality and aspiring to become more than we, what we are? Yeah, so coming into this conversation, I was going to talk about the three good things practice, which is really just every day for a week spend some time writing down three good things that happened during the day and why. And over time, what starts to happen is we begin to notice the good in real time rather than just as a retroactive description of, oh yeah, that good thing did happen, but we actually start to process it in the moment similarly, you know, with, with as much salience as we tend to notice the negative. So definitely 
try that. It's one of my favorite things to do is really to recount and, and remember the negative, the positive things and why they happened. But in keeping with this conversation about the duality and the contrast of the good and the bad, I'm going to suggest something else. I think for our listeners, if you could just spend some time meditating on something, some one thing in your life, whether it's a person or a thing, something that you are grateful for, and just identify what that is. And then spend maybe three minutes thinking about your life without that thing. Think about who you would be, how you would feel in the absence. Mentally subtract that thing from your life. And really sit with that. I think writing down, doing a reflective practice with a journal, pen and paper, even better than typing if possible. And then to go and recommit to really embracing that thing in our life that we are so grateful for. I think mental subtraction and like remove, imagining removing something that we value in our lives can be a really helpful way to recommit to honoring those things. And I find it really helpful in my life um, in just recommitting to my own growth and to valuing the people and the, the things around me that make me me. Yeah, me too. I would, um, and this is more of something that I try to do for myself, but um, this kind of, this three-step process, this sounds so fundamental, but there is, I think, some truth to it. To go to bed and to get up and to show up. And I think that to go to bed and to actually rest as a human requires a profound amount of faith and dependence on other people right? Like if I leave things undone at the end of the day, that, that, that takes a lot of courage. Um, and I think especially in medicine, you feel like I've got to stay three, yeah, I've got to stay three extra hours. I've got to, I've got to go home. I've got to finish this note. I've got to finish this discharge summary. I've got to finish this assessment on a patient, et cetera. Uh, but to, but to just go to bed takes a lot of courage, I think. And then I think to get up in the morning and face another day to go to go to work in the midst of the pandemic again requires an amazing amount of hope to this idea that like I am I am recommitting to this act today. I just need to get up. I need to um, I need to be there. And I think to show up, to be present, to sit with the people that you're with, to be on time, to not be distracted. I've got so much going on. I'm looking at my phone and doing all this stuff. And it's like, I'm like, I, like, I didn't even fully show up to this, you know, like how hard it is just to show up and that like, that's love. Like that's what it means to love the person that you're with and the patient that you're with and the family that you're with. Um, and so this kind of go to bed, get up, show up. If I could do that every day, I'd be a better, I would probably be more on the path to flourishing, um, or kind of have more flourishing in my daily life. Yeah, I think we all hear the the phrase, you don't know how, what you have until it's gone. And this mental, is it called mental subtraction? Um, it's this idea of imagining a world where you are not as gifted or you're not as, uh, that you don't have what you do. And then 
I'm not sure, you know, if, if you guys live out these different fantasies, but sometimes like if I almost get in a car crash, I start thinking, oh my goodness, that would have ruined my whole day. Uh, I, I couldn't have been at this one meeting and that one meeting was very important to me. And like, I'll go through this or if something almost happens to one of my family members and I like kind of, you know, I, I imagine the worst and then later on, nothing actually happened. I am so thankful for what, you know, the, the state of affairs that they are without my imagination. Um, it's about, yeah, it's a way of feeling gratitude. I've actually, uh, I think that's very helpful. So thank you, Dr. Feingold. Um, we want to thank our listeners definitely for uh, listening along. And uh, we're excited about the Thrive RX program for our clinicians. Um, it's a, uh, it has uh, five different um, modules on, on flourishing and thriving. And we are, are giving this to our clinicians. We're excited about teaming up with the ThriveRx faculty and having these office hours. Uh, more information is going to come out on this in the future, but we want to thank you, Dr. Feingold, for taking the time to be here with us. Uh, thank you, Dr. Johnsey, Dr. Abraham, for uh, spending the time as well. As I normally say, uh, and it's in all sincerity, if you enjoy if you enjoyed our discussion, please give us a five-star review. It will help us share these ideas uh, in a broad, um, more broad way or, uh, broader way. And uh, thank you for your time. Until next time, be well.